Thank you, Josh. That was just beautiful. And thank you, Perry, for officiating on our first Sunday without Mary with us for a few months. We have some wonderful lay members stepping in. I really appreciate that. I also want to thank the gentleman and I believe one woman who pooled their resources and bought this platform at the last auction. I'm not sure I have heard this much buzz from people about an upcoming platform address in a while, especially if buzz is measured in slightly nervous giggles. Because even in our very progressive religious community, we are still just a little bit nervous talking about sex. I have my suspicions that the winning bidders at the auction thought that I would be nervous talking about sex. I'm actually pretty excited about it. I guess you will have to come to this year's auction and try to figure out what platform topic would really make me nervous. <clears throat> actually, I was just listening to a whole bunch of clergy talk about sex, or at any rate, about sexuality. I was invited to speak at the interfaith prayer breakfast that kicked off efforts for marriage equality in Maryland. Perry told you during our announcement time about the continuing work and how you can get involved. There were clergy from almost every faith there, including one very cool Catholic religious sister. And I was struck by the comments from a number of them about the gift of human sexuality. I love that this is part of the religious discussion. And actually, the idea of human sexuality being religiously positive isn't entirely new. As I talked about this platform with colleagues, I heard both about the Jewish trad tradition of including sexual connection as part of a married couple's observance of the Sabbath, and about the Puritan, Puritan, belief that finding sex pleasurable was actually integral to a woman's ability to conceive. Isn't that interesting? But do you notice anything tying the Jews to the Puritans to the clergy at the marriage equality rally? All of them are talking about human sexuality within the context of marriage. Clergy love talking about marriage, actually. <laughs> I think in some ways marriage equality is one of the warmest, fuzziest progressive religious issues out there. The pictures from the first days of marriage equality in the District of Columbia say it all. Beautiful couples already committed to each other for decades, making legal the covenant that they had made in their hearts. Little doves flutter overhead as they seal the deal and are congratulated for the 40 years they have already spent together. <laughs> and they should be congratulated. I was one of the people on the steps of the DC courthouse crying that morning. In fact, I am always one of the people crying and congratulating when couples celebrate 40 years together or 50, or 67, like Josh's parents. I worked for marriage equality precisely because I really do believe in marriage as an institution as well as the choice I have made myself. And I have good company in our religious tradition. Ethical Culture's founder, Felix Adler, was well known for his support of marriage, even within his Victorian context, which liked marriage pretty well to begin with. Much of what Adler wrote about marriage still reads beautifully. He saw it as a spiritual commitment, a growing together of two souls, two ethical beings, to make each other more whole. In an essay called Love and Marriage, first published in 1903, he wrote, 
quote, love is the expression of two natures in such fashion that each includes the other. Each is enriched by the other. And later, marriage is fundamentally holy because it is the foundation of homes. Marriage is the foundation upon which the tree of humanity depends for its life. If the fountain be pure, the tree will flourish and bear wholesome fruit. If the fountain be poisoned, the tree must perish. The concept of purity was important to Adler in a way that may not exactly resonate for us in our different time. As a young man, Adler actually founded a kind of chastity club with a few friends, promising to live pure lives, abstaining from all kinds of debauched behavior, but especially from sex before marriage. When you think about it, this was actually semi-progressive. At the time, women were certainly expected to remain chaste before marriage, but men had kind of a freer reign. Adler was perhaps a budding feminist searching for equality. Unfortunately, his thoughts on divorce would not win him points with today's feminists, at least. Adler wrote and campaigned strongly against the emerging divorce laws in America, believing that marriage was for all time. In cases of abuse, he thought it would be acceptable for the parties to live apart, but not to divorce and certainly not to remarry. Makes you almost feel like we're one of those old-time religions, doesn't it? <laughs> but... Lest I sound like I am just making fun of Adler, let me admit that for some time I would have said that I pretty much agreed with him. Not really on the divorce piece, although before we married, my husband and I spoke very particularly about our expectation that our union would be permanent, but about the idea that marriage is the ideal, the best container for sexuality. I might not have said marriage. After all, as a longtime supporter of marriage equality, I am keenly aware that not everyone has the legal right to marriage. But perhaps something I would have called a covenanted relationship or a committed relationship. Of course, I had plenty of friends who were sexually active outside of committed relationships. I did go to college. But if you'd really made me tell the truth, I would have said that I thought they weren't quite as good, not quite as ethical as those who waited for the right person, or at least the person they thought would be right for some reasonable period of time. <laughs> this is, frankly, a little painful to confess. I sound so judgmental. But what I think I was searching for, what I am still searching for, really, is some way to determine what kind of sex is ethical, what kind of sex is ideal. We have a complicated relationship with sex in America, this is not news to you I imagine, where we are awash in highly sexualized images from the media while placing rather strict boundaries around the kind of sex we actually find acceptable. Somewhere I think there must be a line, somewhere between a man, a woman, and the lights out, and for consenting adults, anything goes. There are decisions to be made guidelines to follow that help us to be sexually and emotionally and ethically healthy beings. I want to pause just briefly to note that the most radical end of the scale I just mentioned was consenting adults. 
There are sexual experiences that are obviously outside of this scale, and I want to be quite clear that rape or any kind of non-consensual sexual contact, as well as sexual encounters with children and others unable to give consent, are among those off-the-scale experiences. This feels pretty clear-cut to me, and therefore not that interesting to explore as it relates to this platform. There is work to be done around this. You can look at the recent attempts to change what is legally defined as rape. But for today, I want to set them aside. So we're within that scale today. I want to focus on what is inside that scale, the scale that runs, at least in our imaginations or mine, from traditional marriage, whatever that means, to basically a huge group of people having a giant orgy all the time. So remember, I've already confessed that for quite some time, I might have been just a few notches to the left of thinking sex in traditional marriage was really best. Or maybe it was just that I thought obviously marriage should be open to all, but then if we could all get married, why wouldn't we just all do that and have our nice ethical married sex right here? <laughs> we often talk about ethical culture as being a religion of relationships. We mean that in real life, ethics are found in human relationships, not in books or even in philosophical ideas, but in our lived experience of the world. We're able to test what we believe in the laboratory of life and in our relationships with the people around us. And sometimes we're challenged to expand or change what we believe because of those relationships. Well, I have some friends. Some friends who are in different relationships of varying degrees of commitment, sometimes very strong and deep commitment, who also practice open sexual lifestyles. This might mean that they and their spouse have one other person permanently in their relationship, or that they and their spouse have multiple relationships with other people, lasting for a long time or just a night. Over the last few years, those friends have come out to me, have shared with me their experiences and their choices around their own sexuality and their expression of it. And I have thought, what? But <laughs> that's not, I mostly, I say that inside, happily. <clears throat> but that's not, that's not ethical. Unfortunately, or actually, fortunately, for my own education and for these friends' lives, these friends are ethical. They are people I respect and care about, people whose choices I admire, people who are living lives of justice and love and compassion. And their sex lives are definitely not on the man-woman lights-off end of the scale. On a side note, one of the things I've discovered as I've thought about all of this is an increased sense of empathy for folks whose boundaries are smaller than my own. Raised in a progressive home, in progressive schools, in a progressive congregation, I have always thought that same-sex relationships were just fine. And so when other people who haven't had that kind of exposure, perhaps, have said things like, same-sex marriage threatens traditional marriage, I have been one of those progressives scoffing at the idea. Why would your marriage threaten me? I've shouted out. That is the most ridiculous idea I have ever heard. So it's been a somewhat humbling experience as my own boundaries have been pushed, to have some of those very same circle-the-wagons thoughts myself, to somehow think that the traditional marriage my husband and I chose is suddenly under siege by these different choices made by good ethical people. 
because that's absolutely what they are. And it's exactly that that's made me re-examine my ideas about what ethical sex might mean, what ideal sex might mean. But where to begin? Like any good intellectual, I read a book. <laughs> this was a book recommended by one of those friends, and it was the first thing I've read that made me really, really glad I have a Kindle. Using, <laughs> using my little e-reader with its nondescript pleather cover has made it much easier to use my time in doctor's waiting rooms and in the coffee shop to read this book, which is rather creatively but actually very accurately titled The Ethical Slut, A Guide to Infinite Sexual Possibilities. The book explores, and then what was I going to say? Oh, I'm reading it for work? Okay, so. The book explores how to live an open sexual lifestyle with care and respect, how to live it ethically. And I will say that if you, like me, struggle a little with the wording of the title, I invite you to see it as a reclaimed word and to listen to the ideas in the book rather than getting wrapped up in the language, kind of like what I tell you to do about religious traditions that are different from our own, you know? <laughs> so here is some of what I learned. First of all, did you know that sex is really for pleasure, for fun? <laughs> I mean, I had been aware of that fact, but it's a key premise of any ethical slut lifestyle. Actually, the book goes further, positing sex as something that is simply good in and of itself. Here is how Dossie Easton and Catherine List, authors of The Ethical Slut, put it. Quote, we believe that sex and sexual love are fundamental forces for good. Activities with the potential to strengthen intimate bonds, enhance lives, create spiritual awareness, even change the world. And later, they write, sex is for pleasure, a complete and worthwhile goal in and of itself. People have sex because it feels very good, and then they feel good about themselves. This idea actually has ethical culture backing. In her own platform address called Ethical Sex, St. Louis Ethical Society leader Kate Lovelady wrote this, we need to stand up and say that sex for pleasure is a human good. Good sex increases human happiness and lowers depression. It strengthens and deepens intimate relationships and helps people live longer and healthier lives. Later, she actually talked about the dangers of sex and the dangers of driving and how we don't outlaw driving, but we want to outlaw sex, and, and ultimately had sort of a great metaphor where she um, described sex as like carpooling. So <laughs> I recommend that platform to you. <laughs> It is certainly not, however, a universally held belief that sex is good. The authors of The Ethical Slut point to what they call, quote, a culture that positively worships self-denial. They call this view of sex, sex negativism, and they figure it's in most of us, hiding, as they put it, behind judgmental words like promiscuous, hedonistic, decadent, and non-productive, end quote. Felix Adler, I can safely say, was definitely on the sex-negative bandwagon. In his writing on marriage, he divided the marriage instinct into two others, the sex instinct and the parental instinct. He wrote, the sex instinct in its raw state is unstable, capricious, inappeasable, restlessly transitive, the substance of insubstantiality, compact of infidelity and change. 
Ouch. The premise that sex is fun and inherently good is deeply tied to the concept of embodiment, that we are creatures of our bodies as well as our minds. Those of us in the intellectual, academic, and religious liberal traditions sometimes forget this. We get so wrapped up in the headpiece that we lose track of the rest of us. For me, being reminded of embodiment, of bodiliness, is a learning that sex-positive lifestyles, whatever they look like within an individual life, can bring to all of us. But what about that pesky ethical piece? As you can see from the title of the book, Sex Positivism and Pleasure Alone isn't enough for the authors. They take seriously the idea of approaching sexual relationships ethically. They begin with the idea of consent, which as I mentioned earlier is a pretty obvious one, although they take it more seriously than we sometimes do in common parlance. They define consent as, quote, an active collaboration for the benefit, well-being, and pleasure of all persons concerned, end quote. It's a higher bar, and I think that's important. The other values that make sexual relationships ethical, according to the book, are actually ones that I think resonate with ethical culture. Honesty is important, both with one's partner and with oneself. Being clear about one's desires and wants and staying in conversation about them is vital. And there's a piece about acknowledging the person you are in relationship with, really seeing them as an individual with their own desires and wants, that for me carries echoes of our core value that insists on the inherent worth of every person. Ethical sluthood, as they say, rejects the idea that we are completed by another person, instead focusing on our own individuality and our responsibility for ourselves, but in relationship to all other individuals. One woman in the book describes her open sexual lifestyle in the following way. <clears throat> because I'm responsible every day for my needs being met or not, and for creating and maintaining the relationships in my life, I can take nothing for granted. Every person I meet has the potential for whatever it is that's right between me and that person, regardless of how my relationships are with anyone else, end quote. Although I don't share that woman's choices about sexual lifestyle, if I use her words to describe my responsibility for my own emotional health or for meeting my spiritual needs, I find that they resonate strongly with my sense of being an individual in a network of relationships. Another learning for me might seem obvious, which is not to judge a book by its cover. I don't literally mean this book because I read it on Kindle, but rather not to make assumptions about the relationships I encounter. Someone's marriage might look just like mine, but they may in fact have a very different kind of agreement with their spouse. I've even added a question when I do premarital counseling with couples. Now, when I list the things they need to have discussed with each other before getting married, I add in fidelity. They need to talk about fidelity, I say, and what that means, because it may be different for every person. I want to take just a moment to acknowledge the place of privilege here. As in many places in my life, I am privileged in my own sexual orientation and sexual lifestyle choices as a self-identified straight woman traditionally married to a man with 1.3 children and a house that literally has a white picket fence around it, no one in mainstream America is going to attack me for my own personal choices. 
I have the freedom to explore some of the ideas of open sexual lifestyles, to draw wisdom from them and acknowledge how they challenge me while remaining myself free from ridicule or worse, much worse, actually. People across the country suffer because of others' opinions about their sexual orientation, their sexual lifestyle choices, and just the course that their lives have taken. So as I talk in this rather detached way about lifestyle choices and sexual freedom, I am aware of my unique position in being able to do so. And I do find that I draw wisdom from the reading and the thinking I've done. The ideas behind what makes sex ethical may not seem that groundbreaking. Honesty, acknowledgement of the person before us, responsibility for our own needs, respect and care. Presumably, these are concepts that we try to work into our deepest relationships. The aha moment for me was the awareness that we could work them into our shortest relationships, too. That a one-night stand could hold all the elements of these values. That we could approach a torrid two-week affair with a clear sense of ethical rightness. Communication, of course, and I should say when I say affair, the book was very clear that um, what they called non-consensual open sexual lifestyles would be alternately named cheating. So the idea of communication with your committed partner is key. Communication, in fact, is central to all of this. People practicing ethical open sexual lifestyles seem to have very frequent conversations with their partners and lovers, checking in, listening, talking. It adds to my certainty that the lifestyle isn't for everyone. You don't want to do it unethically, and to do it ethically takes a lot of time. Personally, I have my hands full staying in good communication with my husband. <laughs> but for people who do choose an ethical, open sexual lifestyle, the time commitment is simply part of their commitment in general, part of their sense of what it means to be in sexual relationship. And actually, I wonder if it doesn't all come back to that idea of covenant I talked about in the beginning. If I wasn't right all along, that ethical sex was sex that happens within covenanted relationship. I think what might have been wrong was my definition of covenant. A covenant is generally thought of as a promise that has some kind of deeper meaning, an agreement that calls on our highest values. What I am beginning to wonder is whether we might not be in covenant with each other all the time, in all places. Rebecca Parker, the theologian and seminary president, has written that we inherit covenant before we create it, that essentially covenant exists between us whether we want it there or not. So what if we considered ourselves to be in covenant with each person that we met? It would mean that even a casual sexual partner was someone with whom we had covenanted, someone to whom we owed the same honesty and respect we would give our dearest friend. The authors of The Ethical Slut say something similar, quote, a sexual relationship may last for an hour or two, it's still a relationship. The participants have related to one another as sex partners, companions, and or lovers for the duration of their interaction. And even Felix Adler might have agreed. In the same essay on marriage where he was so down on the sex instinct, he wrote these lines about relationships. The ethical rule applied to human relations is to treat chance relations as if they were necessary relations, to transform them into necessary relations, to treat a companion whom chance has associated with us as if he were indispensable to us in the attainment of our supreme end. End quote. 
I do know that Adler wasn't talking about the ethical value of casual sex, but still, I see there the same insistence on relationship and on care and respect in that relationship, however fleeting. I'm not sure where this leaves us on our scale of ethical sex. I think the answer might be in something a colleague said to me, referring to ethical sex, but also to any kind of behavior that doesn't fit into the boxes society prescribes. The goal, he said, was to move away from having a scale at all, to move away from labeling some behavior as normative and other behavior as aberrant, toward an idea that it wasn't the specific behavior that was important, but the values lived through it. You might make a choice about your sexual life that doesn't appeal to me at all, but my question ought not to be, oh, why do you do that? But rather, how are you doing that? Are you doing it with love, with respect? Are the relationships in your life enriched by it, and is your own sense of self made deeper? And not to lose sight of the pleasure factor, as Ben and Jerry put it, if it's not fun, why do it? Just a note before we end to say that, like many of the things I learn over my lifetime, my guess is that our children and teens are ahead of me on this one. Comprehensive sexuality education has long been part of the liberal religious landscape, and this congregation offers the Our Whole Lives curriculum, created jointly by the Unitarian Universalist Association and the United Church of Christ. It emphasizes the importance of relationships, of knowing your own limits, and of safety, and I think it tries to teach sex positivism within the context of the age of the students, usually about 13. In this congregation, that work is followed by their coming-of-age year, when they examine relationships and sexuality in conversations with their parents, building on the conversations they've had with their peers and teachers in the year before. Our children are not, obviously, reading The Ethical Slut, and that level of conversation wouldn't be appropriate for them but I know they're learning some of the ethical concepts that make for sexually healthy adults, whatever kind of adults they become. You know, I thought at first that this would be one of my funnier platforms, a chance to lighten up and have a good time, because sex is a good time. It turns out, though, that approaching it with an ethical underpinning makes it serious, too, because it has to do with our deepest values. You may have had your own boundaries pushed today, as mine were. You may still find some behaviors abhorrent, no matter how ethically they are approached. You may have been way ahead of me all along and glad I've finally caught up. <laughs> and you may be happy to have finally heard the kind of relationship that you have, acknowledged and even honored on a Sunday morning. What I hope you take away today is the importance of relationship above all the ability of relationship to change our own thinking, the need to treat each relationship with care, and the possibility that we are in relationship all the time with everyone. Next week at our Pay Attention to Love Day Sunday, we'll talk about broken covenants, about what to do when promises are broken or when we break them. Today, though, I want to celebrate the possibility, the reality, that the covenants we keep with each other might look very different from person to person, but that we can keep them all with respect and with love. 
And lest we get too serious, let's remember that no matter how ethical our approach to sex, it's still sex, and sex at its best is fun, good for you, life-affirming. That can be true whether you're having it with your partner of 50 years, your brand new lover, or yourself. Our bodies are a gift. Unwrap them with care, but don't forget to enjoy them. <laughs>